Hold on, I missed it. <laughs> Welcome to this week's edition of the NinersNation.com Better Rivals podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. I was thinking earlier that we should do like last names because that would make the whole Newman thing and it would also help people pronounce my last name. But then I was like, I don't really want to say my last name every week because that's kind of it's long. It's a lot of work. It is yeah. a lot of work. Multiple syllables. I uh, I was unfortunately at my wife's uncle's funeral today, um, but we got to see some of her family. And they, uh, they're like, well, how, 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 this is the first time I've seen a lot of them since we got married. And they're like, how, how do you pronounce your last name? Because now they're like, crap. We have to learn this now. <laughs> it's official. We have yeah. to learn how to pronounce this. Indeed. This indeed. is in English. I didn't sign up for this. That's right. Uh, but here we are. It is the second week of our ski month. We've actually got a pretty fun episode, I think, all things considered for you this week. Uh, it is not going to be a rankings episode. Uh, I do True. not want to draw the ire of Steve Smith. Uh, he would lead the all angry team, even if not the top 100. Uh, I, I definitely not going to be a camp battle episode. I mean, to be fair, we did kind of rank like one thing. We did rank one thing, and we'll get to that in the rundown. But it's like better than like normal ranking stuff. <laughs> so there. Yeah, so let's jump right into it because this is the second episode of our ski month. So we are going to be talking about run fits this episode. Last week, we talked, we touched a bit on offense and how to build an offensive game plan. Talked a little bit about Brian Billick and Bill Walsh and all that fun stuff. Today, we're going to talk about run fits and run defense 101, uh, especially because one Mr. Jim O'Neill was kind of blasted for that in Cleveland. But first, let's get to the rundown. And really, the only story worth talking about, and it was kind of a late second edition there. We just kind of slipped it in when you weren't looking. Yeah. It's, and it's not a story. Let's, let's be very clear. Nothing new is happening. This is very much off-season filler, which is... Maybe a little bit more interesting offseason filler than than some of the other stuff that's out there, I well, guess. Pro Football Focus ranked Ahmad Brooks's contract as the second worst edge rusher contract in the NFL. Brooks is scheduled to make eight million this year, and Pro Football Focus had him rated eighty-eighth amongst edge defenders last year. Um, and that score overall was elevated mostly by his run defense. So that's the kind of the bulk of the news, which is good news <laughs> because usually at this point you're either getting arrested. Uh, or you're hitting people, you're raping people, um, you know, just quit with no more raping. <laughs> I think we can all agree on that. No more raping. <laughs> I think. That's, I mean, it's a great Amy Schumer sketch, by the way. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I th- so they've been kind of going through um, position by position, essentially, and, and listing out the best and worst contracts. And so um, there have been a few 49ers that pop up. But yeah, Brooks was, uh, you know, I guess among the more notable there. Navarro Bowman also showed up in uh, the worst uh, in linebackers, which for them is like mostly inside linebackers, uh, is, is kind of what they group in there. So, yeah, I mean, I thought, thought it would be at least a little bit interesting um, rather than just be like, hey, no news whatsoever. Peace. Let's move on to the next section. Um, we look at like kind of some of the, you know, better and worse contracts that are currently on the Niners. I mean, and I think it makes sense to start with Brooks, right? Like people have been kind of expecting Brooks to get released because of his cap number for what is two years, third year now or the third off season in a row. Yeah. Um, And, and it makes sense because you have a player who has been declining over the last couple of years. He's uh, unlikely to get better. All of a sudden he's going to be, uh, I believe this is his age 33 season. He's 32 currently. I think he's entering his age 33 season. So 
the the likelihood of him suddenly getting better and kind of going on this late career run seems pretty unlikely. And that cap figure just kind of keeps going up. So uh, in terms of worse contracts, is he getting what he should be getting? Um, that one definitely makes sense is probably the most egregious contract that's currently on the roster. So what you're saying is that Ahmad Brooks is a bit like some of the NBA players who were getting like 30 and 40 million. Uh, he's the Della Vadova of the 49ers where he's just getting 34 million for some ungodly reason. And we're not entirely sure why, but he's got a lot of hustle. Um, you <laughs> he's know, he's got a cool last name. Yeah. <laughs> I always think I'm going to say it wrong because it's Della Dova, Della Vadova. I don't know. I think it's Della Vadova. I think it's Della Vadova yeah. too. Um, but so, so my argument for Brooks really is that it's interesting that he still, even with a lower production year, had six sacks. Now, we said that his score by Pro Football Focus was mostly elevated by his run defense. If you think of treating him as kind of like a two down linebacker, which is still, again, eight million for a two down linebacker is still really, really expensive. But if you treat him like a two-down linebacker, you leave him in some passing situations, maybe he gets four or five sacks. Mario Williams had a five sacks last year, and sure, it was his lowest production sack-wise over the past five years, but he got two years, $17 million. You've got Bruce Irvin, um, who is literally a flash in the pan. He had five and a half sacks last year. He got $19 million guaranteed, four years, $37 million total. I mean, you could make an argument that even if Ahmad Brooks comes back with a four or five or maybe six sack season, if you think of him as like a two down linebacker with a bit play or a role play in, in some pass rushing situations, you could justify paying a little bit extra considering the market for edge rushers, especially with 49 million in cap space. It, it's not the end of the world. I mean, the the cap space thing, it like practically, sure, makes it not really that big of a deal. But I, I think the the way to kind of judge these contracts, right, is is more of like an in a vacuum sense. Like, is this player worth this much money um, independent of how much team the uh, how much cap space the team currently has? Right. Because then you can get into, well, that's how they teams make very poor decisions because they think, oh, we have very bad or, or a shit ton of cap space. Let's hand out these these very bad contracts, and then we end up in a bad situation years down the road. Brooks currently is scheduled, so among three, four outside linebackers, his cap hit, which is, again, just over $8 million, uh, is the seventh highest in 2016 among three, four outside linebackers. Uh, he's getting he's paid more than guys uh, like Pernell McPhee, like Terrell Suggs, uh, Elvis Dumerville, Lamar Houston. Like These are all guys... Um, that I think are, are probably considerably better players than him at this point, uh, that he's getting paid more. I mean, he's he's pretty firmly into, when you look at that that group, again, three, four outside linebackers, there's your very clear top tier um, in, in terms of cap value, which is Justin Houston, Von Miller, Clay Matthews, and Julius Peppers. Those guys are all over $10 million. And then you have this kind of second tier that's a little bit bigger, which is guys in the 7 to $8 million range. And Brooks is right there, and and he's not anywhere near that caliber of player at this point. So while is this contract going to impact the Niners long term or like anything like that, have any sort of uh, ramifications on the the future health of this team? No, almost certainly not, um, because you know really they can get out of it whenever they want to and take those cap hits, and it's not going to be a big deal. But again, when you're when you're looking at this uh, this roster and the the caps are because we've talked about this before. There's not a lot of bad contracts on this team. I mean, there's not a lot of high-paying contracts to begin with. 
Um, and then Balky is, has been, you know, pretty good at, at not handing out terrible contracts is one of the, the better things that he's done during his tenure. So, so, I mean, the only other kind of contracts that you could say, maybe they're a bad contract is Colin Kaepernick. But again, it's a year to year contract where if you get someone like Chip Kelly to bring cap back to form, you know, you're looking at 14 to $17 million a year, which is palatable for a starting quarterback at, you know, in the league right yeah, and now. And it's just hard to call a contract bad when you can get out of it that yeah. easily and with not a, really with have a very little cap penalty yep. yeah so that, that one is is hard to really justify too much the only other one maybe is navarro bowman but that's only if he doesn't return back to the navarro bowman that we know and love if if you get the first eight or nine games of last season navarro bowman then yeah nine nine and a half million is probably a lot to pay for an inside linebacker but if you get the last two or three games of Navar- of navarro bowman and he keeps getting back into form then it's still you could easily make the argument that if he comes back to form, you you could easily pay that dude twelve million a year, and, yeah. and that would not be necessarily overpaying him. And and we see it all the time, right? In terms of guys needing a, a year to come back from that injury, right? You, you get that bad knee injury, you come back in that first season there, you're really not quite yourself. I mean, I think we got maybe a little bit spoiled with a, a run of people just coming back, like Adrian Peterson, right? Like coming back. What was it seven months after seven, eight months after his injury and just looking like an even better person or player, um, which is just absurd to think about. So um, I think we get a little bit spoiled with situations like that sometimes. But I think a really great example is uh, somebody like Geno Atkins um, for the Bengals. Like he came back from his ACL injury, uh, really wasn't the same player in 2014. Like wasn't that same sort of dominant force on the interior of their defense. And then last year he came back and he was the same Geno Atkins again once he's another year removed from that injury. So some guys just need a little bit more time to recover and and really get their confidence back. But yeah, I think you could make an argument if he doesn't return because he was still a very good run defender last year. The issues came more in coverage and in the past game. So uh, if he doesn't get that part of his game back, then yeah, you're looking at a guy that's that's pretty overpaid. But um, if he, he can get anywhere near the same sort of player, then that contract's going to be just fine. Now, when you flip the script and you look at some of the best contracts, you look at someone like Joe Staley, who's making $8.3 million this year. His cap number jumps up a little bit next year to 11.1. Then it comes back down to 7.7 for the final two years of his deal. So he's under contract for three more years in addition to this year. That gets him through his age 34 season. And when you look at his overall cap hit, it's 10th among tackles. And so that means that as more players sign more deals, they're going to just push him down the list even further, meaning that more than likely throughout the rest of the contract term, he's never going to be one of the top 10 highest paid left tackles. And you could make the argument that he is a top five left tackle. And we're actually going to break down a play a little later in the episode where he does some very, very good things uh, to a very good inside linebacker uh, that result in a touchdown. So you know, this is one of those, again, this is one of those bulky contracts where if, if only bulky could draft players as well as he like placed value on players, I think we yeah. could easily have a dynasty on our hands. <laughs> um, but, you know, nobody's perfect. Um, and bulky for all the things that he does well in terms of contract valuation um, is um, <laughs> not that good <laughs> when it comes to drafting players. But yeah, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Um, but yeah, Joe Staley has been phenomenal. I mean, the thing that you're really worried about with him at this point, and I don't mean this like with him as a player over the next few years, but um, I just worry that he gets into like this Joe Thomas territory. I mean, he's not that level of player, but it's still this idea of this kind of underappreciated, you know, really great left tackle that now seems like he might get stuck on this bad team for a long time. And I mean, that's Joe Thomas's entire career, right? He's, he's 
been on a terrible team every year he's been in the NFL, essentially. Um, and so I just hope we don't see the end of, you know, Joe Staley's tenure with the 49ers kind of turn into something like that, where it's just he's this guy that's still playing at a really high level, um, but everything around him is kind of so awful and terrible that you don't notice, and it's it's really hard to appreciate it. Um, so hopefully we don't see that. But yeah, I mean, in terms of pure contract, like you mentioned, he's there's there's not going to be a single point over the remainder of this contract where he's one of the uh, where he's in the top 10, right? Higher than 10th among left tackles for for cap hits in a given year, because even when you look at over the next three seasons of just the guys that are currently under contract, he doesn't uh, get higher than 10th. So as new players, you know, are signing contracts every uh, free agency period between now and then, like. Like you mentioned, it's only going to push him further down that list. So uh, his his contract is, I mean, I think pretty easily the best contract on this team right now. That about wraps it up for stories that are kind of worth talking about. There's there's just not a whole lot out there. Um, so we're not going to try and force feed stories down your throat. Instead, we're going to switch right into the meat of the scheme month episode. And this week, we're going to talk run defense 101. We're going to talk all about run fits all about gaps and gap control and how that can affect run defense because a lot of times you get the focus on pass defense. You cover two, cover three. You know, if you're super well versed, you're talking about some pattern match principles. And and that's what you know that's what typically people focus on when they're looking at defense. Also because it's pretty simple to understand. Do you have three safeties? Do you have two safeties? Is there one in the middle? Is there not? Um, but oftentimes run defense is a bit more difficult to understand. And going into this season when we signed Jim O'Neill, one of the stories that was going around was about how his defense in Cleveland was not kind of run fit sound, if you will, that the gaps weren't maintained and that things were a little wonky. So we're going to talk about that as well. Um, but to begin the entire run defense 101 discussion, to talk about where run defense really begins, we have to talk about the different roles that different players play on defense when they're stopping a run. Because oftentimes you might think a, def- a defender you know, oh, it's their fault. They did it wrong and, and it was all because of them. But they might be doing their job and they might have the responsibility for filling a gap. And that changes the way that you assign blame or the way that you look at a play. So first things first, David, let's talk about the roles that each player needs to fit within a defense when they're defending the run. So I think really you can you can ultimately break it down into four main roles. I mean, you can get a little bit more specific than that uh, if you wanted to. But but we're not in the specificity. Yeah, I mean, especially for our purposes and kind of this general understanding of it and, and being able to uh, kind of identify some of these things as you're watching games and, and just to help uh, your appreciation of, of kind of run defense and everything that goes into it. I, I think there's really four roles that are important. Now, before we get into those specific roles, it's, it's really important to note that these things for most defenders can change from play to play based on a, a number of different factors, right? Based on the the offensive formation, based on the defensive formation, um, based on the personnel that's on the field, uh, based on the coverage, especially. So a lot of the, a lot of run fits are, are very much tied in with the coverage. Um, so all of these other factors are all going to play a role in determining, you know, which of these things a, a particular defender is going to fail on any given play. But the four main roles that you're really going to come into are one going to be spill. Two is going to be force. Three is going to be alley. And then the final one is support. So if we start out with with spill defenders, 
these are the ones that I think are, are going to be easiest to identify for you, right? These are really just all of your interior defenders for the most part. Everybody that's kind of uh, in the box, like your defensive linemen, your inside linebackers especially, these are your spill defenders. And their job is really just what it sounds like. They, they want to spill the ball carrier to the outside, right? They want to, to plug up all the space on the inside so that the runner has nowhere to go with the football but to bounce it to the outside. And that gets us to the next one, which is your force defender. So a force defender is going to be the person that is going to be either like, think of them as the outside person on the defense. It can be the edge defender, it can be a cornerback, or it can be a safety. Again, it can change based on the defensive structure and the player and their coverage. But ultimately, the force defender's job is to ensure that the ball carrier cannot get outside of him and force him back into the spill defenders. So basically you're creating these pincers around that defense and that runner. So he's like, well, can't go inside, got to go outside. Crap, can't go outside, got to go inside. And eventually between the spill and the force defenders, you are clamping down on that runner such that you eventually get a tackle for no gain, a loss, or minimal gain. So the the next one really you know plays off of those those two parts, right? Those first two parts. So if, again, you have your spill defenders bouncing everything outside, well, now the ball carrier gets outside and he runs into the force defender, right? He's got to turn it back upfield. Um, ideally, like if that player, if that force defender uh, is like a safety, like you mentioned, um, he might be unblocked. So he might be able to just go in there and make that tackle. Everything's great. But if if that force defender is getting blocked by like a tight end or, or whoever, it's really the responsibility then of the alley defender that's going to kind of fill this void, right? He's looking to fill that space between where your force defender is and where the end of your spill defenders are, right? The outside most spill defenders. So that space in there uh, is is where the alley defender is looking to live. And he's really coming in there to kind of clean things up. Now, his assignment might kind of, you know, change a little bit on the fly as well. If all of a sudden your force defender gets pinched inside and he gets sealed off, well, now it's the responsibility of that alley defender to kind of replace him and, and to assume that force role and get everything moving back inside. So uh, this is usually going to be somebody a little bit further removed from the line of scrimmage. Um, a lot of times it's going to be a safety, like especially teams that play uh, with a safety down in the box a lot, right? Your strong safety type of player. Um, sometimes it can be an outside linebacker. So varies a little bit again, but um, usually that's the type of defender that you're usually going to find filling that role. And then the last one is just everybody that's left, right? It's your support defenders. These are your your pass-first guys. These are the, the cornerbacks that are in man coverage. Um, anybody that's playing a deep coverage, right? So if you think um, about cover three, you have your, your cornerbacks on the outside are playing that deep third coverage, right? They're not really going to be in the run fits, right? Their, their primary responsibility is to make sure that nothing gets behind them in pass coverage. So that's what they're doing first. And then once the run is, you know, cross the line of scrimmage and we know for sure that, okay, there's no, no danger of any sort of trick play or... Uh, you know, wide receiver pass or something like that, then they're going to come up and and look to get in on the tackle. But that's not their primary responsibility. And ultimately, all this comes down to, you know, we've said this before on the podcast, but sometimes football is very complicated and other times it's very simple. And at its core, running is really creating space and taking a ball carrier through that space. So as a defender, then you want to prevent that space from happening or clog up that space such that the runner cannot see daylight and cannot get to open field. So kind of your your run, your, your roles then are important because it's how you help fill those gaps. But at the core of that strategy is really gap control. 
And gap control is something that you hear often. You've heard of one gap defenders, two gap defenders. And we're going to talk about that a little bit here, less so about the specific techniques and more so kind of about why gap control is important. Because ultimately, when when you are on offense, what do you want to do is you want to create a gap and put someone through it. And if you're on defense, you want to stop someone from getting through that gap. So when we're talking about gaps, we're really just referring to the space between offensive players. And, and specifically, especially when we're talking about the running game, it's the space between offensive linemen and sometimes tight ends. That's what we're referring to when we're talking about gaps. And so really just to, you know, kind of a quick run through. And, and if you if you guys search this out, right, if you just look like Google football run fits or football gap control or any of that stuff. I'm right? going to tweet it out right now, as a matter of fact. Yeah, you're, you're going to get a bunch of different images that will kind of lay out these gaps for you and even the different techniques if you're kind of interested in that. Um but the the basics of it is your A gaps. There, so all of these are lettered. A gaps are going to be to either side of the center. The gaps outside of the guards are going to be your B gaps. Outside of the tackles are your C gaps. And then finally, if there is a tight end uh, attached to, to the offensive line there in line, uh, outside of him would be the final uh, D gap is really as, as high as you're going to see it go. So um, if you think then of kind of a pretty standard formation, right? Where you have your five offensive linemen, one tight end to the side of them. The defense then has seven gaps that they need to account for. So controlling those gaps is really kind of the first thing that they need to to accomplish. And that's really the structure. The, the foundation of your defensive calls are really built around making sure that I have a defender that's accounting for every single one of those gaps, the the specifics and the how and, and all of that stuff, the different techniques you can use to do it. That stuff's going to vary. And, and we'll talk about some of the more common ways here in a little bit, but it, it the most basic form it's you, you need a defender and a gap. Somebody's responsible for it. Um, one other thing that I think is, is important to note as well um, before we kind of get into how defenders account for these gaps um, is that gaps can move on a play, right? So, uh, a lot of what we're talking about there is is kind of assuming this static pre-snap look, right? To either side of the, the center is that your A-gap. But as the play is occurring, those gaps are going to move. They're not going to be in the same spot on the field. Um, that's actually, if you've heard us talk about, like when we um, have talked about the running game in the past from the offense's perspective, you know that there's a couple different types of blocking schemes, right? You have the zone blocking scheme, and then you have the other one, which is usually what people refer to as a gap blocking and the reason that they call it gap blocking is because that's essentially what those plays are doing. They're, they're removing and creating gaps all across the line of scrimmage. Um, and, and so that's where that, that term comes from. And so that's just something to keep in mind that when you're watching these on Sundays and you're watching these games unfold, like know that when you see somebody pulling around or you see a fullback coming into the line of scrimmage, they're effectively creating new gaps or they're moving gaps from one point to the next. Sorry, I was reading Twitter. I got a little distracted. Um, <laughs> hey, it happens. Yeah. Um, so we've got gap control and we've got roles. So if you you can go on Twitter and see that I just tweeted the actual picture that we're looking at when we're talking about, about gap control for the rest of this episode. But the roles help you maintain that gap integrity. You want to make sure you have a person in every single gap because if you don't have a person in that gap, then all of a sudden you have an opening. And if you have an opening and you've got a good running back, it's lights out. So how does a defense then 
account for these gaps because if you count them out i mean if you've played football at any level you counted the gaps out a b c d right or sometimes you had two four six on one side and three five seven on the other right yeah usually like so from the offense's perspective they tend to number these so they they call them holes and they number them right so you usually have odd to one side even to the other side 22 dive that was the first play i ever learned in football um yeah yeah, it was that was it it was two back the two hole um on the right side your your right a gap that's exactly right and so when you're on defense then you think of the a gaps on on either side of the center, then B gaps, and then C gaps, and then D gaps on the outside of the tight end. So it's just, you know, because, you know, defenders just basically hate offense. So they're like, we're not going to do the same thing. Oh, yeah? Gonna, you got not. numbers? We're going to counter with letters. You know, what? That th- this seems like something... <laughs> Like someone who basically says like, yeah, uh, I'm at uh, 200 West 8th Street, le- uh, unit B, or no, it's uh, letter B, or letter 1, that's what it is. They just said like letter 1, oh, or, yeah. <laughs> or like, or no, number A. Yeah, yeah, oh, there God. you go. That's probably the one that happens. Number A. It's yeah. the same. It drives me up the wall with the people who are like, yeah, I woke up at 6 a.m. this morning. Oh, really? 6 a.m. this morning? Because sometimes 6 a.m. is at night. <laughs> I don't I don't get it. I don't understand it. But we digress. So how do defenses account for these gaps? Well, basically, each gap is assigned a specific defender. You're a dude. Fill that gap. The specifics of how a particular defense assign these gaps is going to vary depending on the philosophy, the the general scheme, the structure. But by and large, defenses are going to fall into one of two categories or a blend of these two categories. One-gap defenses and two-gap defenses. In one-gap defenses, each of your spill defenders, remember these are the defenders that are usually your linemen and your linebackers, the ones in the middle, that want to spill runs towards the outside of the force defenders. They're assigned a single gap. You attack the A gap, you attack the B gap, you attack the C gap, so on and so forth. Now, two gap defenses are usually where you are expecting someone to cover two gaps at once, depending on what happens. And so usually your defensive line, maybe a linebacker, control the gaps to either side of the offensive line. And so ultimately at this point, you're controlling linemen and not gaps, but the effect is the same. You can cover both an A gap and a B gap with one player which, of course, opens things up behind those defensive linemen. So we'll talk about some of the benefits and harms to each, but ultimately that's kind of what you, the, the two areas are generally going to fall into. Yeah, and I think um, it's it's important to note that I, I don't think there's one that's inherently better than the other, right? It, it really comes down to a, a philosophical choice. What does the defense want to do? Like, what do they want to be? Um, you know, you're, you're, you tend to get some different styles with each of those, right? One gap defenses tend to be uh, have their their defenders be a little bit more aggressive, right? They're they're only focused on filling this one particular space, and so they can be you know kind of lights out in doing so. Whereas your two gap defenders, I need to control this person, right? So I'm going to be likely head up on a, on an offensive lineman as opposed to being aligned between two offensive linemen. So I'm gonna, I'm just going to look to get a hold of that offensive lineman, control him, and then kind of read what's happening. And then, oh, okay, I noticed that the, the ball carrier is going to my right, so I'm going to look to go to this right gap now. Um, so it's a little bit more read and react. Um, you know, some, I guess, depending on your perspective, some coaches might call that passive. Um, but I, I, I do think that it's important to note that, like, successful defenses have come from either style, and, and there's not one, again, that's inherently better than the other. And really a lot of defenses today, like in the modern NFL, use a combination of both. And, and so this really... 
uh, again, if you've listened to the podcast for any length of time and you've heard us talk about a lot of the spread stuff that we went over with with Chip's offense and doing the breakdowns there, and we talk about like how spread concepts like the zone read and what that does for flipping the numbers advantage back in favor of the offense, right? So before that, before we, we get into any reads, the defense has the advantage because the quarterback's not a, not a factor. And so when the offense starts doing things like the zone read and putting the quarterback in play and kind of flipping that numbers advantage again, the defense has to look for something to do to kind of combat that. Otherwise, they're just going to be kind of a man down the whole time. Um, and so one of the things that you can do is mix your defenders and the techniques that they're playing. So all of a sudden, okay, maybe I would prefer to be a one-gap defense, right? That's kind of where I, I would like to be uh, in, in, a, in a vacuum. But because this team runs spread, they run in zone read, I, I need this linebacker that n- would normally be responsible for the B-gap. I need him to go after the quarterback. I need him to do something else. So maybe I make one of my defensive linemen in front of him two-gap instead. So now that gap's freed up. That defender's freed up. I can have him go do something else. So you get that sort of back and forth, and and that's why we see a lot of these kind of more hybrid fronts in in today's NFL. That you'll see hybrid is great, right? We want to be multiple hybrid, all of that stuff. Um, just, but I feel like that's like the football version of synergy. Like right, we just, yeah, we just totally. want to have synergy, and we want to be collaborative, and we're going to be in the cloud, uh, <laughs> and we're going to do all of these things, and we're going to make our opportunities and our productivity uptick. Every every defensive coordinator that's ever been hired, he wants to be multiple. He wants to be aggressive. He wants yep. to get after the quarterback. Guess what? I should have put one of those in last week's uh, fake OTA quotes. I should yeah, have put one of those in. Go. Yeah, that that would have been a good one. Um, and I think ultimately what it all comes down to is last week we talked about kind of setting your scope. And on offense, when you're creating your game plan, a lot of your scope comes from how many plays you have to call. Right? Like what? How many options do I need? Well, on defense, the scope in this case is. How much ground do I have to cover? How many gaps do I have to fill? And how am I going to fill that? The way in which you do that depends from defensive coordinator to coordinator, but ultimately the goal is all the same. You want to fill every gap with a player so that you don't leave any gaps on your line so that you don't let or allow any runner to get by you and score lots of touchdowns. And so this is kind of where we get into the stuff with with Jim O'Neill that we mentioned kind of at the top of this that... It was really something that we wanted to to touch on while we're going through, you know, how these the basics of run defense work, essentially. And so one of the interesting things, again, most defenses fit into one of those two categories, like one gap or two gap or maybe a little bit of combination, uh, you know, depending on the team and the game plan. But essentially what was coming out of Cleveland and of course, nobody wanted to go on the record, but this was supposedly from players in the locker room um, that were mentioning they're essentially deciding what technique to do on the fly like as the play is happening based on how the offensive lineman is blocking them and so what this leads to like the the good thing about the other ones right and and nearly any defensive book um, that you'll ever read is going to mention about keeping things simple so that players can react right you don't want especially your defensive players you don't want them uh, thinking about things and, and kind of like oh he's playing this specific technique I need to do this in response like you you want it to be drilled and reactionary, right? Where you can just kind of let the athlete take over, let him do his thing. Um, and, and that's where you're going to get players that kind of can shine and stick out. If they're thinking too much, it's just going to be slow. And the offense is always going to have kind of this advantage over them. And that's what you you saw, or at least heard, I guess, coming out of Cleveland last year, was that that's how the players in that defense felt. Um, so this is going to be something that's really interesting 
to see over the course of the season, because I'm sure, you know, I, I haven't heard it brought up at any point um, by the Bay Area media um, during any of his media availability at this point. But um, so I, I don't know. He hasn't had a, like a, to address it specifically. But this is something that, you know, we'll see unfold over the course of the season and we'll we'll see. Um, kind of how they approach things and, and be able to pick up things on tape that'll give us an idea here. But uh, it's definitely among the more interesting things to watch going into the year. Well, I think the quote specifically to me is super interesting because th- this is the quote that was in that SI article, that Sports Illustrated article to Kevin Jones. And it's, quote, rather than being assigned specific gaps, Cleveland's defensive linemen play different techniques based on how their offensive counterparts are blocking them. The linebackers then are expected to guess what technique their teammates are using, scrape through the resulting mess, and make the play. Opposing offenses have identified this flaw on film and are repeatedly, week after week, gashing the edge of Cleveland's defense. It's a completely chaotic approach to stopping the run, and players have said, off the record, they're spending way too much time thinking and not nearly enough time reacting. End quote. So even going back to some of the stuff we talked about last week, right, where it was to reduce uncertainty with your offensive game plan. You want your player not thinking but playing. You want them going fast and doing what they do well. The, the, the same thing goes on defense, right? Like there is certainly a degree of thinking that has to happen, um, and some teams do that very, very well. But ultimately, if your player is thinking about, you know, well, he's blocking me here with this technique, that means I have to do this. And then your linebacker's like, oh, I think he's doing that. That means I have to do this. All of a sudden, you end up with a chaotic mush. Um, and so it will be interesting to see if some of that, it, one, that may not be entirely accurate, right? Like sure. you, you've got players who, and we talked about this when this quote originally came up, right? If I'm a player and I get paid based on performance, it's much easier for me to tell a prospective employer, oh, I wasn't that good because my scheme sucked, <laughs> as opposed to saying, oh, you know what? You really shouldn't pay me a couple mil because I'm 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 pretty shitty actually. I couldn't really understand the defense. I really didn't know what my gap responsibility was. I couldn't do my run fits. Um, but yeah, two mil sounds great. <laughs> um. <laughs> so so I think the the thing that really exemplifies to me like how bad this is if it's true, right? And like how how bad of an idea this is to have players thinking this much over the course of of a given play. Um, on on offense. So if you're you're looking at this, if we kind of flip things back over to the offense's perspective and the ball carrier, right? If he's looking at this when he's deciding, okay, I've got the ball in my hands, which hole am I going to go to now? Imagine it's a zone run, right? So he's got some options. What he's looking for, so he's not sitting there studying exactly like, oh, the A gap, this this uh defensive lineman here is playing this specific technique. I better not go there. He's looking for color. Do I see a flash of the bad guy's colors in that hole? Okay, I'm moving on to the next one. Like it's 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 got to be something that's very quick and easy to process. Like these are the type of keys that players are looking for as a play is unfolding. So if now all of a sudden we we take that back to the Jim O'Neill example, uh, and we're looking at your you're a linebacker in that scheme, and you have to not only do I need to be looking at my offensive keys, right? I need to be if I'm an inside linebacker, maybe my key is the guard or it's the backs or whatever whatever it is on, on that play. So I got to be focused on that. But then I also have to pay attention to the specific technique that my defensive linemen are playing in front of me. And I got to kind of guess because it might not be super clear. And then I got to make this move based on that. Right. I got to look at all this information. And by that time, like the plays by well, I was going to say by that time, Aaron Rodgers has executed a play fake and is throwing right over your head 
to yeah. a wide receiver that's behind you because you were looking at a the guard, which is your first key, and then b the defensive lineman, and you haven't even looked at the quarterback. And it's easy to make to make you think that you're running a running play because they're pulling a guard when in reality it's a passing play. I mean, you're already out. Yeah, and so I mean, the whole thing's just kind of. It's it's really insane to me to think that like it was actually like this. Like part of me is like, okay, it couldn't have been that bad because this is this is really dumb. Like this is a really dumb idea. Um, <laughs> whoever thought this was a good idea definitely should have been fired. Um, well, he so, was. He yeah. was. <laughs> well, well, we'll see. We'll see how true it is. We'll see if uh, if he learned from the mistake at least if it is true uh, and kind of how things play out. Um, I mean, reactions so far. I mean, most of the reactions I've seen from defensive players have been mostly secondary based. Like. Oh, it's a great scheme for safeties and stuff like that. There was a uh, the the week that like fifteen stories came out about how great yeah. it is for safeties. Um, so so we'll see. I mean, we're really not going to have an answer to to this, no matter if he addresses it in the media or not. We're not going to have an answer until we get to see what this team looks like on tape. So how can you then kind of identify some of this when you're watching football, when you're watching some tape? Well, in terms of roles, I think it's it's going to be pretty easy to differentiate what the spill players are. If you're like, all right. Like interior defensive linemen, linebackers, especially inside linebackers, you're almost always a spill player. Chances are, if you're doing something else, then you're probably in some kind of weird exotic formation. The The force player is also generally easy to understand because they're the player or generally easy to spot. They're the player that looks like the only thing they care about is creating an exterior wall to push people on the inside. So oftentimes you'll see a defensive back do this, a cornerback do it. Sometimes you'll see a safety and even an outside linebacker do it. They don't look like they're running after the ball carrier. They don't look like they're running after a runner. They look like they kind of just put their arms on whomever's trying to block them and stand there so that they can set the edge. And, And that's usually the force player. Now that creates an alley, right? You've got kind of the inside mush and then you've got the outside force defender Whomever's in that alley is, well, the alley defender. And then everyone else, your Earl Thomases of the world, you kind of everyone who's kind of like running around and like, oh God, it's a run play. Uh, and they turn around and they try and tackle someone half heartedly. Those are your support players. And that's kind of how every play breaks down. Uh, now, in terms of figuring out who's in which gap, take a look at the diagram. It's a lot easier to look at than it is to have us explain it. And just remember that you always want to have someone filling a gap. And so if you want to look at some of the all 22 or you want to look at a play, just look at where you think, hey, look, there was a gap there. There was a hole there. There should be someone there. And there wasn't. And, and who, who do I think may have filled that role? It looks like this guy was an alley. Maybe that guy was a force. These are the spills. Oh, look, that alley defender didn't make a tackle. Mm, probably on them. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and that's how you can kind of begin to deduce where the accountability for run defense lay. And you may not always be right. We're not always right. But you can begin to put these different things in roles. And once you get more familiar with the defense, you can also be like, all right, this person's usually an edge. This person's usually a spill. They're hardly ever here. They're hardly ever there. And you can begin to figure things out that way. So that at the end, you're not just saying like, oh, that guy missed a tackle. He did his fault. Um, you know, yeah. sometimes you miss a tackle, but... The fact that you were even there was a remarkable play to begin with because it wasn't your responsibility. Yeah, and I think with the with going for there, so I think the the roles are again the kind of the easiest thing to to be able to point, out, especially when you're watching um, the the broadcast view, right? So when you're watching this just live on Sundays, those are going to be the easiest things to kind of to kind of flesh out and be like, oh yeah, I know which role this this particular defender was in on a given play. 
Um, when it gets to the specific technique, that one's a little bit more difficult. Um, it really, really, really helps to have that end zone view from the, the coaches tape there. It really helps, uh, spread it, like everything looks so much more spread out and it's just kind of easier to identify what players are, are looking to do. Um, the big thing though, is players tend to kind of align with what like technique they're going to have, right? Not, not definitely not always, but a lot of times if you see a guy on the defensive line and he's lined up in a gap, right? He's lined up between two offensive linemen. Well, guess what? He's probably responsible for that one gap. He's probably one gap, and that's his gap right in front of him. Sometimes you'll see like the defensive line slam. Maybe everybody's slammed to the right. Okay, they're just moving a gap over, right? And those will be typically for most defenses more one-off plays that you'll be able to pick up on. But um, usually you're going to see one-gap defenses align in those gaps, and then the two-gap defenses are, are more frequently going to line up head up on, head up, on yeah. players, right? They're going to be right directly on the offensive lineman. So you're going to see that nose tackle directly over the center. You're going to see, uh, for the 49ers especially, you're going to see those those defensive ends head up on the tackles. A lot of times, those guys, when you see them after the snap, if their immediate reaction is to engage that player and not to try to move into a specific gap, well, he's probably two-gapping, right? He's probably looking to control that offensive lineman kind of see what happens after there and then make his move once the the running backs kind of declared himself a little bit more. Um, So those are little things that you can pick up on there. The big thing is, is you just kind of like over time you get a feel for it, right? You see what these, uh, the defenders like to do and like in this defense and they tend to do a lot of the same things over and over again, right? You see this, okay, this defensive tackle is, is acting this way, play after play after play. This is probably his responsibility. I think, there's a lot of things that we talk about that you really shouldn't assume when you're watching football, especially when it comes to assignment. But I think the one thing that you can assume is that players are generally looking to uh, carry out their responsibility in the, you know, the best way that they know how, right? They're trying to do their job. And so if you see them, he's this guy's really, really trying to get the outside shoulder of this uh, tight end that's blocking him. Well, he's probably the force defender, right? He's really worried about being outside. He's trying to fight across that block and get out there regardless of what the ball carrier is doing. So that's how you kind of can put things together is look for little things like that. Assume that players are trying to do their jobs um, and it kind of starts to fall into place. I remember the like the first moment that it really all this stuff kind of clicked for me, like everything made so much more sense. I was just like, oh, man, I've been making so many mistakes when I'm like trying to figure out who's uh, at fault on these plays. And it just kind of like all comes together but it comes after time. So I thought it'd be really fun to apply a lot of this stuff to a couple of plays, one from the past and one from the recent past. I, I guess it would be really, really weird if we did one from the future, I guess. I mean, that'd be impressive. Yeah. Um, Some I, of our finest work. Really. We, yeah, I think that would be really neat. I think we could prognosticate <laughs> a bit. Um, but we, we're going to really pick two plays, one of which is my favorite run in 49ers history, the other of which was a run I completely forgot about until I saw it on NFL.com's <laughs> top 10 plays of the 49ers from last year. Seems like so long ago. <laughs> no. But um, the first play that we're going to break down is Garrison Hurst's 96-yard touchdown run in week one of the 1998 season against the New York Jets. So first, let's go ahead and play the quick 30-second ra- uh, radio call from Joe Starkey. This is actually a video they put on NFL.com. Uh, and, and you'll get to hear the call. And if you remember the run, you're probably visualizing it in your head. Uh, but we're going to listen to the call and then break it down and identify what defender was at fault for the ultimately, I guess, game-winning run that Garrison Hirsch ran here in 1998. 
right, let's go 90 90-0, be good with the ball. Yeah. So now they've got to start from deep in their end of the field, and Garrison Hurst takes advantage of it. Takes a handoff, sweeps to his right, gets to the 20. He's on the 30. Needs to cut in. He comes back up the right sideline. Breaks the third tackle. Comes down to the 30. He's down to the 20. He's down to the 10. He's down to the 5. He's into the end zone. Well, that was the call, Joe Starkey, man. I love hearing Joe Starkey's voice. It was a good call. Way better man. than the, the actual broadcast had Phil Sims, which uh, nobody yeah. wants that. Jim Nance and Phil Sims. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, wait, did I say Jim Sims? Uh, no, I said, uh, no, you said it right, I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure you said it right. Jim, I mean, who cares? We'll, we'll go with you said it right. Okay, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Being right's better. And even if it wasn't, you know what? Hopefully no one rewinds the tape. And <laughs> if you do rewind the tape, you deserve to know. You deserve to know. Uh, so let's break this down a little bit. Now, if you can remember the play, you probably remember the outcome more than you remember the beginning. And what was interesting when we were looking at this is that the 49ers formation does a couple of interesting things to the New York Jets run fits at the second level. So their formation was an overloaded formation to the left. Basically, they had two wide receivers to the left and they had a tight end to the right. And what that did was it gave the offense a numbers advantage and one lonely alley defender guy on the right. By having no wide receivers in a tight end, you basically are shifting that defense in such a way that you've got one alley defender and no support defenders on the right-hand side. So you're almost setting them up to hit them on that right side, even though it looks like the formation has got a strong side to the left. Because remember, so so your, your support defenders are typically your pass-first guys, right? So it's it's all of all of the cornerbacks, you know, deep safeties, pass defenders. And so what you do with this formation is you have your pass strength to one side and your run strength to the other. So by doing that, it's moving all of those support defenders away from where you intend to run the ball. So now you have a, a numbers advantage, or at least you have, uh, you know, you have a blocker for every defender that's now on that run strength side of the ball. Um, so that was the first thing that definitely works in, in the 49ers' favor on this play. The other thing is what we were talking about earlier with kind of uh, the gap blocking schemes and these kind of creating new gaps and uh, removing other ones and, and having defenders be forced to really move with these these changing gaps as the play is occurring. So the big case with this was actually the nose tackle on the play. Um, dude named Jason Ferguson. Good old Jay Ferg. I'm sure everybody here remembers him. Seventh round draft pick. Seventh round draft pick out of Georgia. I didn't just look that up immediately before we started the show. That was totally off the top of my head. Absolutely. Um, so he's initially lined head up on the center, right? With how their their alignment is, though, um, he really should be responsible for that strong side A-gap. So it's to his left as you're watching it. Um, and what happens is the 49ers get two down blocks there. So he's... He kind of follows the center who is down blocking on the other defensive lineman. And it really takes him out of that a gap that he's responsible for because with the down blocks and then your guard pulling around that a gap is moved a little bit to his left. And so he's left out of position because of this. Um, and then because of the things that we're talking about with the, the pass strength being over there, he doesn't have the support defenders to kind of pick up the slack um, and to be able to help him, fill that gap. So that's how you get Garrison Hurst through the line of scrimmage. Really at that point, the only guy left is that one, that one alley defender that you mentioned, the safety on that side of the play. 
and he misses the tackle. And then once you get beyond that, because of the formation, the way things are set it's up, bedlam. It's, it's off to the races. So as Starkey um, would say, what a bonanza. It, it's just kind of this, uh, it, it's a great example of how just one little thing, one assignment, right, can can be the difference between a play. If he's able to to maintain that gap integrity, right, maintain that gap control that we've been talking about and stick in that A-gap, like that play probably goes for a minimal gain, right? It, yeah. it probably doesn't go anywhere. Um, but because he gets moved up the spot, he gets taken out of that gap. Now, all of a sudden, everything else that, with the formation and the, with the setup of the play really turns that from, you know, okay, maybe in a normal situation, this is a five, six yard gain to being a 96 yard gain that, that yeah. wins the game. So ultimately, it was a fault of the spill defender at the point of attack. It was the nose tackle that got out of position, did not fill the A gap that he needed to fill. And as a result, you were able to get a down block on that individual. Uh, and uh, and that's Kevin Gogan got the down block. And then you've got Garrison Hurst running around him behind a pulling Ray Brown. Um, there were a couple of other things that helped. You know, the force defender kind of overextended. And, and you know, there were a couple other things that helped. But ultimately, if Ferguson is able to maintain his gap integrity at the point of attack, then you don't have a 96-yard run. Um, and you also, I mean, it helps that you're running back stiff arms someone basically in the 2004. Yeah, I mean, once you're 20, 20 yards downfield, right, like all this this stuff goes out the window. It's like uh, we just need somebody to make the tackle. And, uh, you know, I seriously like as soon as I saw that play, I, I went outside and started working on my stiff arm. Like I, le- I legit was like, I'm going to stiff arm. Oh my everybody. God. Just once I'd like to throw some, like, even if it was like a 12 year old that I just like <laughs> palm their face and like threw them aside like that. It's like on the ground and like, uh, ran by them afterwards. Like, Oh my God, be the most satisfying thing. Dude, ever. So speaking of sports ball and satisfaction, at least watching satisfaction anyway, um, we played slosh ball during July 4th weekend. Um, and for those that are uninitiated, um, it's drunk kickball, right? Okay. Yeah, but there are a couple of there, there are a couple of additional layers, right? So you basically you've got a keg and the keg's at second base. And the rule is you you always have to have beer in your cup. And if anyone calls you out, you're up to the L in the solo cup. And if you don't have beer in your cup and someone calls you out on it, you do a keg stand. If you drop your beer at any point in time, so not if beer falls out of your cup. Because that's going to happen as you're playing kickball, right? Sure. But if your cup literally falls out of your hand and hits the ground, you do a keg stand. Uh, minimum five seconds. And, and there are various rules like that. You know, like some guy ran into second base and ended up knocking the keg over. Keg stand. Um, you know, so it, seems it's, reasonable. Yeah, it's basically things like that. So playing kickball seems fun, but then doing it one-handed when you're trying to catch a pop fly when you've got beer in hand and you can't drop your <laughs> beer and you're already a little tipsy – um, you know, that then things become a bit more interesting. Recipe for a lot of home runs, I feel like. There was only one home run. There was only what? one home run. Yeah. Um, Weak. So, but that's not what was interesting to watch. What was funny is that I, I, have, a co- I have a co-worker, um, and she was one of the organizers of said game. And, you know, bless her heart, she is probably one of the most unathletic people I've ever seen in my life. Like she, there's no way in which she moves that is not angular. It, there's no fluidity there. There's no gracefulness. It's just herky jerky stop motion movement in human form. And sounds great. Yeah. And so she's playing out near first base. And we're trying to like kind of hide her, right? Like she's not playing first base and she's not playing outfield. She's kind of in that in between area that no one kicks at. Um, and this ball inexplicably goes right at her. And it's not a line drive, it's not a pop fly. It's somewhere in the middle. And she's wearing sunglasses and she's got beer in hand. 
And she just like it's her shining moment. I mean, this is her garrison, her stiff arm moment right here. <laughs> she is she knows what she has to do. Uh, she got stiff arm by that ball. Didn't and she? she goes, I got it. And she opens her hands wide. Like, I mean, just imagine creeds with arms wide open playing in your head. And all of a sudden this ball just goes and hits her smack down in the face. Yeah, and yeah, her her sunglasses just shoot into the air, <laughs> <like> straight up, <laughs> and she drops uh. her beer, and she completely drops her beer, and her friend runs up to her, and she goes, "Emma," and the first thing she says is, "What happened?" Uh, <laughs> I was really hoping the first thing was, "You got to do a keg stand now." <laughs> no, that was what came second. The first thing was, she did not know what happened. She literally lost a bit of consciousness from glasses hitting face to friend running up. Like, I mean, she's got to be in stage two of the concussion protocol at this point. Dang. Yeah. Um, somebody better keep an eye on her. She ended up doing a keg stand like a champ, came back out to the game, finished it. Uh, so yeah. we do the, how many numbers am I holding up? How yeah, many fingers? She uh, has, oh, four. Close enough. She legit, Get back out there. She legit has a bruise like right here. I thought she was going to come to work with a black eye. Um, it was, oh man, it was one of the funniest Yikes. things I've ever seen. I've never seen anyone trying to hug a kickball in midair and just get pelted in the face. It was absolutely bonkers. Moral um, of the story. Moral of the story is work on your stiff arm. <laughs> don't, don't get stiff armed by Garrison Hurst or a kickball. Yeah. It's bad news for you. <laughs> so that's run number one. Run number two, a more recent run. Is going to be a zone run from week one. Uh, and this is going to be in the Minnesota game. Uh, one of... Uh, <laughs> the only good one. Yeah, right? Um, this I think, actually, Carlos Hyde only scored... Did he score one or two touchdowns that game? Uh, two. Two, yeah, because he had 160-some-odd yards, two touchdowns. Uh, and this was his second touchdown in the fourth quarter. Now, at this point, it's still a football game. It's the fourth quarter. It's 9.44 to go. The 49ers are on the 17-yard line. It's a 10-3 game. Uh, the Niners are up, of course. They have 10. Minnesota's got three. But it's definitely not, a, you know, kind of a, a done deal at this point. And the 49ers line up, and they run a standard outside zone run against Minnesota's 4-3 over. And, and that's kind of the setup initially, is you've got the zone run, and it's an outside zone, so you're looking at Carlos Hyde trying to go outside, and, and then you've got Minnesota, who's in a 4-3, and they're like, I think our front side of the defense is going to do pretty well. Yeah, so it's, I mean, again, another example of how just one defender, right, one mistake by a single defender on the play is really the difference between the play being bottled up and and going for no gain and a 17-yard touchdown run, right? So um, as we're getting, so again, we talk about the, the gaps moving. It's a little bit easier to watch when you imagine these zone runs, right? Because everything's kind of moving at the same rate. Like everything's going, all the gaps are going to the same side all at once, as opposed to a gap getting taken away and then being added over here, uh, you know, further away from it. So uh, it's a little easier to follow when you're watching this. And so as a defense, right? So this is, again, an outside zone to the offense's right or the defense's left. So what the defense is needing to do, all of those guys, all those spill defenders that are assigned a specific gap on this play, they're looking to continue to move left, right? To move left with the offense as those gaps move. Um, and essentially everybody does this, right? So everybody on the front side of the player, the play, the, the side that the play is going to, the side the ball carrier wants to go to, um, everybody's right there. You, you see them, if you pause it, kind of right after uh, Carlos Hyde takes the handoff, 
you'll see, we get back to that color in the hole, right? Uh, you, you see purple, purple helmets on the correct side of the lineman in every single gap to the play side. What happens is that Anthony Barr, he's the weak side linebacker. So he's on that backside. He's responsible for the B gap to the offense's left. He gets cut. Joe Staley takes him out. So he gets a little overzealous, get, uh, a little too aggressive shooting that gap, and Staley takes him out. And now all of a sudden, even though you know you have essentially six defenders, no, seven defenders actually as I'm watching it right now, um, seven defenders to the play side all doing their job, all in the correct spot, all ready to shut down this run. One guy gets taken out of the play, gets a little overzealous, doesn't keep that gap. And it's it's a big play. Carlos Hyde puts his foot in the ground, gets that cutback lane. Now it's compounded a little bit because you have your safety. So, you know, again, one of your support players that's there um, that should be kind of filling that gap, you know, that alley defender. That's Robert Blanton, another name I did not just look up. Um, also don't think he's currently on the team. Um, if I, if, if our lads is, uh, is correct. Homeboy got cut. I'm going to assume it's because of this play. Don't know for real. Don't I don't matter. know about your lads, but our lads, <laughs> what, is um, that, what is that website name from our lads? Like no idea. Don't make it. It's almost as dumb as better rivals. It's a, it's a great depth chart website though. <laughs> so uh, it's got that going for it. Um, and so, you know, that this guy takes a kind of a poor angle and, and maybe he's able to save that play, right? If he's if he takes the perfect angle of the ball. Um, but he hesitates a little bit, takes a bad angle. That gives Carlos Hyde enough space to to get out to the end zone untouched. Um, but again, it's it's when you're looking at that, um, I don't know if if Barr is the guy that immediately would jump out as you're watching this play is the one that kind of screwed up that led this uh, led to this play. Maybe you think it's guys that are over pursuing or you think it's that safety that took the bad angle, right? Like any number of things. And in reality, you had the majority of the defense, at least the, the majority that was going to be you know involved in this play that had a realistic chance, right? Yeah, the, a couple corners to the opposite side, they weren't impacting this play no matter what happened. So everybody that's there, all of them are doing their job. All of them are where they're, they're supposed to be. And then one guy gets taken out of position, and that's how you have these big plays happening. Usually, if there's a big run, you can almost always bank on the fact that somebody either didn't account for a gap or got taken out of their gap. Like that's, that's how it works. Like if everybody on defense is where they're supposed to be and filling those gaps, it takes a broken tackle. It takes a really obvious bad play for anything too positive to come from that. And and not to go down too far of a rabbit hole, but this is where having a runner like Carlos Hyde, who has experience in his own scheme, who can see those openings, who can see that, that, that space and go, Oh, look, greenery. And put his foot in the ground and just go right through that vacated hole is is really valuable. And that's a slightly different skill set than someone like a Frank Gore, who sometimes will attack a hole when there when there actually is a defender in that hole, knowing that that defender is going to move out. And then you've got just a little bit of space to squeeze through and you pop out the other side. And, and all of a sudden, it's, you know, it's a 15, 17 or 20 yard game when you saw him run into what looked like a crowded line but he had faith in his blockers or he knew that something was going to happen. He was able to read body language and, and it's a little different skill set, um, which is why I think, you know, Carlos Hyde's probably going to have a, a good year if he can stay healthy in, in Chip Kelly's scheme, but that's a whole different rabbit hole. Um, and I've got a 90 and 90 on Carlos Hyde. I've still got it right. 
Um, so that's more <laughs> oh, there'll be a lot. I mean, you know, if all goes well, if, if he stays healthy, there will be a, a lot of time to talk about Carlos yeah, Hyde. Exactly. Um, a lot of fun stuff should happen if that, that's yep. the case. So that about does it for this week's episode. It's coming in a little late because we didn't have a rundown, but uh, but that's okay. That that's all right. Yeah, um, it's some good, it's some good off season stuff. I mean, thankfully, like most of the stuff, right? You can come back and listen to this whenever you want to. Yeah, you can, uh, check on the ski month from uh, last week, right? Where we talked about the game plan. Hell, you could even go ski month from last year, right? Absolutely. Lots, lots of stuff here that that isn't necessarily time sensitive. That's really good stuff to fill. Uh, this kind of off-season gap where there's nothing happening. I drove to Waxahachie today, listened to a bunch of podcasts. Um, there's yeah. a really, really good one from Malcolm Gladwell about... Um, oh, I'm so excited to start this. I haven't, yeah. I haven't done it yet. Revisionist history. Yeah, revisionist, revisionist history is really good. The first episode is really interesting because it talks about um, foul shooting um, and Wilt Chamberlain. Yeah. Uh, they did a, a little mini kind of preview of that on uh, on This American Life. That was really good. Um, there's another one about the Supreme Court I started listening to called We the People, I think. Um, I think it's We the People. Oh, no, More Perfect. More Perfect Union is what it is. Oh, okay, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I listen to, we listen to, like, a lot of podcasts. I and mean, it's a, it's a two-and-a-half-hour oh. drive. Um, I'm yeah. about to get, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm going to be driving for about 24 hours to go up to Pittsburgh here at the end of the month for the, for the move. So, uh, lots of podcast time is what that is. That's right. Um, so... Man, that does it. Let's uh, let's think of our call to action. We forgot one last week. <laughs> yeah, we um, forgot one last week. I I com- had completely forgotten about it too. I'm glad I'm glad at least you remembered because <laughs> I was like, oh call, well, no, we're done. Show's over. Yeah, no. Um, I, you're usually see. much better at coming up with these than I am. Let's see. I mean, we could you could do any one of the roles, right? You could do uh, which one sounds the funniest? Probably spill. Well, I mean, color in the gap also sounds <laughs> color in the hole. Hashtag color in the hole. Done. That is the winner. Yeah, color in the hole. That's that's what you need to know this week, folks. Uh, as usual, you can, you can... If you forget everything else that came from this last that's right. what, that's, hour... That's the encapsulation. That, color in the hole. That gets it done. The defense yep. and the run game, and you put color in the hole. That's right. Color in the hole. Um, you, I, I literally tweeted out the diagram of the shading techniques and the gaps... Um, so look at my timeline. You can follow me at Better Rivals. David, where can they follow you? At David Newman with an underscore at the end. Indeed. Uh, and uh, you can always see our articles on Niners Nation and leave us a review on iTunes because they help. That's how people find us. That's how people like us. That's how people subscribe. Oh, yeah. And let us know. You guys were terrible at this last time. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, intro music. So so we've been, uh, we're trying this now, the second episode, trying, trying some stuff out, right? We're still trying to land on... Uh, on some intro music for the long term, um, really trying to move away from the the music, actual songs, into the more legal space of yep. uh, uh, something that we actually have the copyright to. Um, so yeah, let, give us some feedback there um, on Twitter, wherever, Facebook. Uh, let us know what you think. Let us know if it sucks, and we'll look for something new. Yeah, and uh, as a reminder of what that sounds like, it sounds a little bit like this. And, of course, with the outro music, that means that leaves just one thing. And as always, go Niners. Hello, I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation. And I want to tell you about my new show, It Seemed Smart. 
It Seems Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seem smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain. Or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission. Or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart.